0: Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech and a regular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, technology and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech weekly newsletter. It's a weekly e- email that goes out to hundreds of subscribers across 35 countries uh, and it's really making sense of everything that's happening in the MarTech world. People who read it work in the largest uh, advertising, consulting, media and technology brands. Now, Today, we've got an awesome guest. His name's David Winkelstein. He's the co-founder of BDEX. He has been working in this industry for many, many years, since 1994, uh, specifically in uh, advertising world. So he's a tech entrepreneur. He's a founder of numerous internet companies. uh, And he has done a lot of work in the privacy and ad fraud space to really improve what we're doing in the industry. So I'm really excited to have David on the Making Sense of MarTech podcast and to have uh, to pick his brains for an hour to understand what is happening in the advertising world. What is the biggest shifts that have happened in this industry uh, over the past year? And what can we do moving forward as well? And so uh, BDEX recently had a report that they've done and they found through their research and their analysis, more than 250 million false identifiers in ad networks. And so uh, BDEX and David have been working very hard to expose a lot of what's happening in the digital advertising industry around ad fraud and around privacy. So today we're talking about everything privacy and ad fraud. And our conversation will be in two parts. So the first part will be about bad data, uh, the, the reality of ad fraud and what to do about it. And the second half will be about consumer privacy and the major trends and the major changes in the industry impacting uh, that particular area as well. And so without further ado, I'd like to welcome David. How are you? You're
1: doing great, Juan. Thank you so much for having me here today. Awesome.
0: So I'd like to open the conversation with a brief introduction to yourself. Uh, Like I mentioned, you're a pioneer in the ad tech uh, digital marketing space and you've seen perhaps a lot of technologies come and go uh what what's been your journey so far tell me a bit about the landscape like it was in the early 2000s and the 90s and what has been some of those major shifts over your period of time working in this industry
1: sure i um, happy to so uh yeah as you referenced uh, i started out in this industry in 1994 Um, I started an internet service provider, um, in the New York, New Jersey area, um, sold it in 2000 to a cable company. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, in from 94 to 2000, obviously internet was really early there. Most people were just using email and things like that. Um, but we started building websites, you know, and, uh, it, the, it was very interesting how the web really started, uh you know, early web browsers such as Netscape, um, its you know, no one really uses anymore. Um, but cookies had started very, very early. So, you know, we'll get into a conversation about that, but it's really interesting that uh, cookies were being used in those early days in, in the web, you know, the web usage, uh, but not for the same things that, you know, you see them used for today. Uh, over time, you know, a lot has changed. Uh, we sold that company in 2000 and I started an internet advertising platform called ContextuAds. Ads. At the time was a, a very contextual advertising platform, uh, but we used cookies then even uh, to track consumer uh, websites that they went to and content on websites. And eventually that became more behavioral where we're tracking a lot of consumer behaviors based on ads that they clicked on and engaged with and websites that they went to. Uh, and that really led me into the data industry as well um, and into, you know, building BDEX or today it's, it's a, uh, it's an incredible world of, of how much data is being tracked about consumers. And, and there's been a, a just a, an amazing sort of progression from the early days of using cookies, you know, just to, to, sort of, uh, customize websites and things like that to how it's used today to track people across, you know, um, the entire web and, uh, and target advertising and collect data and all kinds of other things that are going on.
0: Yeah. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Cookies seem to be, a, um, have been around forever, <laughs> you know, like, like even since I've, yep. uh, when I started using the internet cookies have always been a thing, but now we're yep. getting to this really interesting point, uh, in which uh the third party tracking and cookies is becoming less popular and less widely used with the major tech platforms but let's not get ahead of ourselves we're gonna have a great conversation on that in part two uh but before we get there i think there's a really good conversation to kick us off on bad data so looking at the digital advertising industry and reading uh the research that has come from bdex this uh, is quite alarming in the scale of uh, ad fraud that is happening out there. So a few stats just to call out. So uh, you guys found 25% of a billion customer identifiers were found to be fraudulent. So that's a huge amount of data, 250 million identifiers. Uh, Incredible. Uh, The National Association of Advertisers, they suggest that, In 2019 alone, in just one year, in one year, $5.4 billion in ad spend has been wasted due to fraudulent data. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, there's an interesting, uh, you make an interesting recommendation in the report that by eliminating bad data, marketers can uh, increase the return on ad spend by 43%. And so, you know, that's quite a significant jump. You know, any marketer looking Mm -hmm. at that thinking, wow, okay, by addressing this problem of bad data in my ad stack, uh, I could significantly improve my, the performance of my campaigns and my marketing. But mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about the scale of this, because when I read that, I look at it and I think that is absolutely massive. Now, 250 million false identifiers is, you know, that's almost the size of the United States. You know, it's incredible, right? The amount of da- bad data that's out there. So could you walk yeah. us through uh, the report that you did, the research and the analysis that was done and why you guys kicked it off in the first place?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the, your last point, why we kicked it off is, is really, it was totally self-serving. Um, you know, as a data platform, we understood early on that identity was pretty much the most important piece of the puzzle for us Mm -hmm. connecting the dots between a consumer identity. So we could identify data that was incoming to the platform who it actually belongs to. Mm -hmm. And so, that that became, you know, a sort of a project internally is really how it started. We said, okay, well, let's look at the data that we're getting from all of these um, different sources, right? Whether it be apps or websites and things like that that are passing along this identity data to us. And, you know, this is how the, the industry works. You have SDK platforms, you have app developers, you have publishers and websites that are essentially trying to monetize their apps and their websites, right? And so they partner with companies to help you know, monetize the data that is collected from their, from their apps or their websites. Uh, the problem is they're just a publisher and they're not filtering that, any of that data. They don't know anything about where it's really coming from. They just put a piece of code on a website and, or in an app and the data starts getting sent into you, right? Well, the problem there is that the data that's incoming was what we found when we started looking at and analyzing this data, we found a lot of anomalies. And what we realized is that these anomalies were being caused by ad fraud and click farms and bots and all these things that are generating fake advertising dollars were also thereby default creating data. It looks like an ad is being viewed. So there's some information about a consumer and that was creating data that was tied to that um, with you know, false identifiers or identifiers that are linked wrong or whatever it is, when you got a, uh, a click farm filled with thousands of, of uh, devices that are all just you know, bots clicking away at things, that's not just ad dollars that are being spent there. There's also a lot of data that's being created and there's false IDs, right? These, each of these devices look, is supposed to, they're trying to make it look like a person. So those devices are being sent into these platforms and ads are being served to them. So now what's happening is you have all these false identifiers. So we had to, you know, in order for us to do what we were trying to do, which is build this platform that enabled advertisers to make use of this data, we had to make sure that the data was correct and that these were actually real people. Otherwise, we weren't serving our customers, right? We're, we're just you know, providing them with bad data. So it was completely self-serving. It was <laughs> an analysis and a project that, that you know, we did over the course of a year. Um, and, you know, we did a lot of analysis of a lot of data from a lot of different sources to come up with those results. And, and yes, yeah, so it is astounding. It's an entire country worth of data mm-hmm. that uh, is generating a lot of, you know, click fraud and, you know, fraudulent advertising dollars that unfortunately advertisers are spending money on.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's it's just phenomenal to me, the absolute scale of this problem. And it's fantastic to see more solutions out there to start tackling and identifying where fraud, fraud occurs. Uh, but what I really did like about what we just said there, David, is that there's different types of ad fraud. So when you say ad fraud in the industry, people usually tend to think about bots you know, okay, you know, there's random bots or, you know, they're not real people. But there are other Mm -hmm. formats of ad fraud as well, like spoofing a customer's location is a a really, uh, really interesting one as well. And so Mm -hmm. what are some of the major takeaways from that report in terms of the different types of ad fraud uh, that is occurring? Could you walk us through that a little bit more?
1: Um, Sure. I mean, you know, it's different types of ad frauds. Yeah, spoofing, um, Mm. click farms, where there's actually real people hmm. sitting at a terminal and just clicking on things, um, because that was an obvious attempt to try to look like a real human. Um, and and like you said, bots, very intelligent bots have been created to uh, move the mouse in, you know, uh, the or the pointer in in directions that makes it look like a real person is there. So. Yeah, there, there's, you know, and IP spoofing and, and all kinds of things. So, yeah, there's a lot of different things. Um, and because of that, you know, when you're in the advertising industry, uh, you're always trying to chase down who is, you know, trying to take advantage of you. Now, it's something that's existed forever. I mean, our previous business and contextual ads, we did a, a lot of pay-per-click. And back then, you know, the pay-per-click industry, was under fire for click fraud you know how do we identify <laughs> click fraud and there were lots of different types of bots and things like that that were trying to create you know fake clicks and make them look like real people you know it's something that that probably you know will never really end you're just continuously having to keep up with the the latest fraud technologies
0: yeah I, I just think that there's it's a it's constant evolution there's always going to be a bad actor out there and uh, that mm-hmm. that company organization is always going to take advantage of. Uh, What's well, a system that's pretty opaque. Uh, one thing that mm-hmm. really strikes me about the ad, the ad tech world, and perhaps more in the specific display in the PPC sort of space, is that it is pretty opaque, you know? So there are a lot of different technologies working together, and mm-hmm. uh, there's a bunch of different middlemen, you know, and there's been a lot of complaints about this. You know, like okay, if yeah. I'm going to push something into PPC or display, and, and you know, use my ad budget, how how much of that money actually goes to the publisher, and how many of that, how much of that money goes to people that are in between, or those different exchanges yeah. and things like that? And because you've been in this space and you've seen it all, uh, what does that ad st- ad tech stack look like? Like, so what are the different layers in which yeah. uh, which money is flowing through? Uh, where is the ad fraud happening in that stack as well?
1: Yeah, there's so many different layers. And when we first got into the data industry, sort of transitioning from ad tech to sort of data tech, um, you know, what we realized is that, you know, our goal was to try to reduce the number of layers because there were so many layers that the publishers are really seeing 10 to 20 cents on the dollar because all the other you know middlemen were essentially collecting the other pieces, so you have your publisher right and then depending on the the actual layer stack, you could have some DMP in between there you can have a DSP and then you have you know, or, or you have your SSP and your DSP so you have both the demand side, the supply side, you have your data management platform, and then you have your publisher so you could have four or five layers. Um, Wow. And then you could have an agency on top of that that is using, you know, a, a demand side platform. So that adds in another layer if you're an advertiser. Um, so the advertiser is spending all the money and then it just gets chopped up into smaller pieces before, by the time it gets down to the publisher. Uh, I think that uh, that's going to change. Um, I think that, you know, you know I know we're going to talk more about cookies, but I think that with a lot of these other changes going on, Um, I think you're going to see those layers shrink down.
0: Yeah. So when you talk about demand side platforms, DMPs, could we go a little bit more into detail there around what those systems actually do? Because, um, when you say DSP, it can mean a bunch of different things depending on if you work in an agency or brand mm-hmm. side or if you're a technology vendor yeah. as well. Could we go into that yeah. a little bit more and flesh out what are those platforms actually doing? What are they doing with data? What are they doing with their with ad dollars?
1: Yeah, so uh, ultimately what happens is the supply side of the platform and sometimes a DSP is also an S, you know an, uh, a, uh, an SSP. So, um, But the supply side is essentially where the ads are placed they have the relationships with the publishers and that's you know they manage those publisher relationships um and so that's your supply side right Mm -hmm. and then you have your demand side which is the the agencies are saying okay we have a demand we need to place these ads so we need to find all of the different locations all the supply and there's this sort of um programmatic um, um sort of piece to all that to identify where they can place the ad. But how do they then find where to place the ad depending on what data that they're using? So now you have your data management platform that's saying, okay, well, I can track you know, all the, the users at each of these supply locations and tell you some information about them so that we can help then target your ad using that data. So it's building those audiences based on the supply and then the demand uses those audiences to, to reach them. Um, on the supply side. So, yeah, there is a lot of pieces to the puzzle.
0: There is a lot of pieces and it's a big puzzle. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So moving on, let's talk about uh, some of the developments. And if you follow the advertising world, some of these headlines might be um, pretty relevant or familiar. So uh, there's one example of um, Uber, actually, uh, in 2017, their performance marketing manager, they cut their ad budget by two thirds. Uh, and that was, a lot of that was just going straight into the ad economy. So straight into ads uh, through programmatic. But what ended up happening was that uh, that was a hundred million dollars and they saw no meaningful change to their business outcomes in terms of conversions yeah. or signups to their apps, things like that. And what I find interesting is that Uber that, is just one example. There's so many other Um, companies Mm -hmm. that are experimenting in this way. They're literally shutting off ads. Uh, eBay is a really good example as well. I find that fascinating to me in that uh, it seems like the only way to test against ad fraud um, is by shutting off your ad spend. But to me, I think there are are other ways to think about this um, without having to take sort of pull the plug straight away. Uh, But Mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you've seen, uh, perhaps that you work through with your customers around detecting ad fraud um, ensuring that the data they're using is vera- it's got veracity, It's correct. Um, and things like that. How, how have you been approaching detecting ad fraud and, and minimizing it so that our dollars are going where they should be going?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, I, I saw some of those articles as well. I think it was Ford dropped all of their ads off of Facebook at one point too. Um, after, uh, Uh, They got in some trouble. Right. (laughs) And, uh, and saw the same, same result, you know, just, you know, no change in sales. So um, what does that really mean? Right. I mean, does that really mean that, uh, you know, does that back up Mm -hmm. that uh, such a large percentage of those ads were going to ad fraud that it didn't really matter if they replaced those ads or not. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's true. Um, You know, we have seen that. We do believe that is the case. Um, But there are things that I think advertisers can do, uh, you know, I think the biggest mistake that a lot of advertisers make is working with one platform to deliver their ads. You know, they say, okay, well, I'm really happy with the trade desk or whoever it is. I'm going to just keep running my ads there. Uh, but you know, there's sort of, uh, you know, an important thing to understand is that you're reaching different people when you're reaching different, uh, when you're using different platforms. And so the, The devices that you might be reaching on one platform versus another are not necessarily all the same, especially when you're talking about this influx of ad fraud. And so I think that A, B testing, not just at the campaign level, but uh, at the platform level is one way that advertisers can at least help identify is one platform really working better for them. Maybe they're able to find a platform that is more um, taking more care about identifying ad fraud than in another. Uh, you don't know until you try that, uh, but uh, I think that's certainly one tactic that they can take. Uh, I don't know that shutting down all your advertising is is necessarily a good thing. You know, it, it may work in some cases. Um, you know, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that that's the best strategy. Uh, often, A/B testing is a good good way. The other thing is looking at where the data is coming from. The one of the biggest challenges that we've seen over the over I'd say the past, you know eight or 10 years is that a lot of the data that's being used in these DMPs, these audiences that are available to everyone so easily, just literally off the shelf, you just click a button and say, oh, I want to target people that are looking to buy a new car, boom, done. Uh, those audiences are flawed. Um, not only flawed with fraudulent data that's in, in them, but you know a lot of the models are, are, are sort of flawed. Uh, some of them are predictive, some of them are, are you know, looking at historical data, um, but you know, with so many changes that are constantly going on, that audience data just really doesn't work as well anymore. And I think most uh, people are starting to realize that just an off-the-shelf audience is not going to work for them. And so I think going forward, you're going to see a lot more custom audiences working for companies and that's one of the things, you know why we got into the business and what we do is, is to build custom audiences, to really look at consumer behaviors, analyze those behaviors and build audiences based on those behaviors rather than some propensity model or historical data. Let's look at what they're doing now and try to reach that consumer, the right consumer at the right time. And the other thing will be machine learning where looking at first party data and enabling companies to take their first party data. uh, And you're gonna, you know, I I talk a lot about this when it comes to uh, cookie deprecation as well. And, you know, but uh, you know, the first party data is gonna become more and more important. You know, you can't obviously use that to reach new customers, unless you deploy some sort of machine learning and you can model those users. And then it comes down to what data are you using to model them because that data has to be valid. And the identifiers linked to the audience you create needs to be valid. So you really need to make sure that you understand who you're working with to build you an audience like that. But I think that that is going to be the future is more behavioral um, custom audiences and audiences built through machine learning.
0: I find that fascinating. I think there's some really good options there to look at. Uh, I really particularly like the idea of A/B testing a platform level, not just at a campaign level. And you know that actually takes a lot for a lot of enterprise businesses. That takes a lot of wrangling to go. Okay, well, you know, we're going to we're going to test Trade Desk versus another platform. You know, like going at that level and looking at the different audiences that those platforms um, provide. I think that's a fantastic step because if we're looking at Uh, yeah, which platform is the right fit for our company and for our customers, our potential customers. uh, That is a great, great way to uh, think about it. Uh, But yeah, 100% agree with you that there's many, many ways you can detect ad fraud. I think the advent of machine learning really will help sort of strengthen this, I think, in a lot of ways. It's a a great solution. Uh, But I would like to probe a little bit more on the machine learning issue uh, a little bit because it's fascinating to me because we've got this environment where there's a lot of contamination of data. So, you know, what we mentioned before, 250 million identifiers that BDEX found. Um, mm-hmm. We also have machine learning, which requires clean data sets to be able to work on that data. And so yep. i will be interesting to get your view on how machine learning can be perhaps a little bit more applied to detecting ad fraud and testing and things like that.
1: Yeah, so that's a it's a good point. Um, there are, I believe, companies that are that are looking at trying to detect ad fraud with machine learning. Um, you know, I think that there are challenges there because, you know, when you're talking about machine learning, you're talking about building a model and you're talking about, um, you know, needing to continuously feed that model. And unfortunately, when you're talking about ad fraud, like we said earlier, they're always changing. It's constantly changing. Mm. They're always coming up with new new ways to sort of, circumvent detection and so when you have something that's trying to circumvent detection it becomes a lot harder to build a model that will stick mm.
0: yeah I, I think it's yeah it's very fascinating i think um yeah there's a lot of opportunities there because machine learning works great when there's volumes of volumes of data and there's and there's plenty to work with and uh plenty of inputs and variables as well so yeah i think that's a it's an interesting point to uh to raise um, I would like to ask a question on, uh, particularly this topic around uh, how BDEX actually supports the ad network. Now, mm-hmm. I would I would love to get a view of uh, perhaps. Oh, give me a quick quick sec. <laughs> you could probably hear my son in the background. <laughs> uh, give me a quick sec. I might just uh, quickly say say hello to him. Good morning, buddy. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> I'll cut that one yeah. out. My apologies. Um, sometimes I'll come into, so I've got this a separate room and um, sometimes I'll come in. Uh, but anyway, let's move on. Um, so the, I guess the, the the question I have is around BDEX and how you actually set up your customers. Because I think this is really interesting in that, uh, you know, you guys offer, um, it's, a, it's a DMP, it's using first-party data. You, you guys are very much in this space using that sort of real-time behavioral data for advertising and targeting. Where do you guys start with customers? Uh, say, uh, you know, I, I came off the street and said, hey, look, uh, you know, I'll be interested in, in uh, implementing uh, BDX technologies. Uh, where do you guys start? What do you guys do An audit with your customers? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, typically it's very consultative. We want to understand, you know, not just the customer, but who is their customer? Uh, who are they trying to reach? Mm-hmm. And so we do take a very consultative approach uh, in order to say, okay, well, let's figure out what. Type of data defines your customer. Um, you know, if you're in automotive, you know, let's look at you know not just what kind of car they already drive or or any sort of other demographics, but let's look at you know where have they been online? What kind of searches are they making? Do they are they making you know searches related to vehicles that are showing that they're about to um, um, search for a new car? Well, that's the type of information that would be really helpful, right, to identify sort of that, the right person for you. Okay, well, let's look at that. Um, is there geolocation data of them walking onto a car dealership lot? You know, that could be interesting. Um, a lot of that's changed now. A lot of people are shopping online first for a car. And by the time they've gone to a dealership, they've already made their decision. Um, but there's a, you know, a lot of different sort of you know, behaviors that we talk about to try to understand who the customer is that they're trying to reach. And then let's look at the data sets that define those, those behaviors. And then we can do two things. One, we can, you know, build a custom audience that is around those, uh, those data sets Uh, or two, uh, go back and say, okay, well, maybe the behaviors aren't the thing we need to look at. Maybe it's looking at your first party data. Let's, let's see who those people are. Let's build a model of those people. And, you know, we we build some pretty complex models looking at thousands of data sets per consumer. Um, rather than just looking at demographics, we can look at all these different behaviors and psychographics and things like that, um, where they go uh, to build a model that we believe will work. Um, and we'll often, often, you know, offer to AB test that with our customers say, Hey, look, let's, let's look at what you're using today. And here's the audience we're going to build for you. And that's, Test it against what you're using today. Let's see how it performs. And then, you know, sometimes we'll build two or three audiences like that. And we'll say, let's, you know, look at which one performs the best and then tweak the model. You're you're on mute. <laughs>
0: um, so I find that uh, the the difference there in philosophy around uh, behavioral versus, uh, I guess, the demographic psychographic type data right so there's two very very different sets of data it's interesting that you're saying that you you actually are focusing a lot more on behavioral data uh, as opposed to that sort of demographic. Uh, type data and I'd be interested to unpack that a little bit like why do you think that's more important to focus more on the behavioral over the demographic type data what does it actually mean for targeting like practically like what does that look like is it look like things like retargeting based on on-site behaviors and things like that or is it more related to uh, what customers have purchased in the past it'd be interesting to go a little bit more deeper into this topic because I think it's fascinating advertisers and marketers have been using dem- demographic psychographics and these different sort of more Uh, you probably say profile type data um, in the past, but there seems to be a shift to behavioral type data more. Um, Mm -hmm. What's your view on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've seen a a great uh, improvement in performance using it. Uh, I think that just like anything, you know, it evolves. And I think that demographic targeting was used for many, many years because it was readily available and it was, Mm -hmm. you know, It was, you know, having it abundantly available just makes it, okay, well, you know, let's let's use that. Um, Behavioral targeting was difficult. Uh, It didn't really exist until, you know, a few years ago. So I think that now that, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with not only data capacity, but computing processing capacity to be able to uh, process data in closer to real time so that you can actually act on these behaviors. And so I think now is, it's, is why you're seeing that evolve. It's just access to that behavioral data is more readily available. Um, and now since it's readily available and, and people are using it, they're seeing an improved performance on it. So you're gonna see more and more um, activity there.
0: Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's a really good point. It's more available to us now uh, we have uh, far more access and the maturity around behavioral analytics has become very interesting as well. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. ability to track, not just, I'd say, you know, what a customer's purchase, but also like what elements they're clicking on. Are they, you know, watching a video? What are the combination of those different um, uh, points that, you know, can we build propensity based on those things as well? So, yeah, I think that's a really fascinating point. Um, and we are at a very interesting point of maturity in that space in terms of targeting and tracking Uh, So let's shift gears a little bit. So we've talked about ad fraud, bad data, and some things you can do to start uh, minimizing that and getting more out of ad budgets and your marketing spend. Now let's talk about consumer privacy. And this has been a hot button topic over the past year of 2021. There's been a huge amount of announcements across so many different platforms. um, And a lot of it has to do with third party cookies. But before we talk about cookies, there are, I just want to canvas all the different changes that have happened over this year. So let's start with Apple. Well, Apple recently announced the IDFA. So that's their sort of app uh, identifier. They're, they're shutting that down, making it very hard to track in-app uh, behaviors. Uh, they've introduced privacy cards in app stores. So when you download an app, you can see exactly what kind of data is being tracked for you. That's brand new. Uh, iOS 15, which I think was just announced and it's about to go live. I think you can download it, upload it on your phone now. Um, yeah. They've uh, They've decided to pre-screen emails so even like email open rates has become a bit of a problem because uh, Apple's, Apple's going to screen that, and you may not get accurate uh, open rates from using the mail app uh, from Apple. And then Safari, this is a little bit a little bit uh, further past in time, but uh, Safari is, is shut down cookies tracking as well. And so Apple's moved towards this position of uh, privacy first. Uh, you have full control over uh, whatever you do online, uh, who's tracking you, who's targeting you, uh, whenever you're using an Apple device. To me, that's absolutely fascinating. We'll unpack that in a minute. Uh, the next yeah. is Amazon, uh, which has been really ramping up their marketing uh, efforts and their advertising efforts. So they introduced AMC, I think it was last year. Uh, there was a beta. They were testing it with a bunch of their customers. It's, AMC is an Amazon Marketing Cloud. And uh, mm-hmm. they have got, you know, like a vast volumes of, uh, particularly US, of rich first-party customer data. And so yeah. that it's not just uh, Amazon, but Uh, It's Facebook and Google, uh, you know, with the shutdown of cookies and uh, tracking these companies that have that vast uh, volumes of customer data. I find that very interesting in that uh, they're in a very strong position now uh, with a lot of the shutdown and online tracking. Um, And uh, on that, Google specifically, uh, they've announced that they're going to shut down cookies as well, third-party cookies, in their browser, uh, in Chrome. And again, that's was going to happen this year. And then everybody freaked out. (laughs) And so they delayed it, um, I think, until next year. And so uh, they're even moving. Google's even moving away from third-party cookies and introducing and testing a concept called FLOC, Federated Learning of Cohorts, which is really um, a Google-owned audience that you can use and and manage. um, And it's a very interesting sort of closed system. Uh, And then there's government regulations. So, you know, we've got uh, GDPR, which has been around for many years now. We've got CCPA in California. We've got uh, other countries. We've got uh, UK bringing in new data protection uh, policies. We've got Ireland, we've got South Africa. There's a bunch of different nations that are bringing uh, digital privacy regulations into government and enforcing regulation. And so when you look at the whole world of everything that's happening, it's, it's vast, it's complex. There's a lot of different moving pieces here, but it's all moving in this direction of, uh, you could say, increased consumer privacy online. So let's talk about third-party cookies first. Now, uh, you've been, like we mentioned at the start, you've been working uh, with cookies in this space for many years. But before Mm -hmm. we talk about how they've been shutting down, uh, how how they've been shut down uh, by these larger tech platforms, uh, what how, do you think of some of the systemic reasons for that? Why are 3rd party cookies being shut down now? Why is it now? Why is it not five years from now? Why is it five, five years ago? What are some of the contributing factors to why we're seeing this go away?
1: I think that it's a great question and there's just, there's so many levels to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is this was, a, a, I believe, a very opportunistic move by each of these players. When you see governments saying, hey, we need to do something about data privacy. And then you take a company like an Apple or a Google and you say, well, wait a second. You know, what if we take control of privacy? What if we demand that privacy changes and follow the government's suit? The government is saying we should do it. What if we embrace that? How can that benefit us? And what happens is you end up with these gigantic walled gardens, right? Um, Apple uh, being, you know, one of the largest Apple, Google. And what happens is, you know, Apple several years ago made a very failed attempt to enter into the advertising ecosystem. Uh, And Ever since that failure, I think they were—they've been looking for an opportunity, and this is a massive opportunity for them because if they can shut out—and all they're doing is—is is doing what the government says, right? Hey, we're just—we're just doing what what the government says that they want us to do. They want us to be more privacy centric, okay? Um, and so, had they done this on their own, I think it puts a much bigger target on their back, and we are seeing. Potential antitrust suits that are that are um, being put together. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons why Google backed down was because of the antitrust suit. Uh, I think it was in the UK, um, and why they, you know, delayed the the cookie deprecation. Um, you know, I think that whole idea of what Apple did and what Google did and trying to do it in such quick succession, um, I think, never gave the ad tech ecosystem a chance to adapt. And that seems very um, you know, it it's it, it's very directed and on purpose, you know, that that wasn't by chance. I mean they could have easily said, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna work with the ad tech s- ecosystem and we're gonna come up with a solution that'll work for them. So we're gonna call this a three to you know a three year project. And no, I mean Apple gave originally gave what a couple of months notice. Um, you know, um, and Google gave a year, um, and then now has extended it, obviously. So I think those were, you know, very much directed around opportunity, you know, opportunity for them. Mm. And, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens, but, uh, you know, with Apple, with the changes with Apple, it just puts them in a really good position for their new, Um, advertising platform to launch and say, Hey, look, you know, you want to reach our customers. This is the way you have to do it. Um, You know, I, I think that, you know, it's, uh, it's a capitalist market and you know, that that's capital, that's what capitalism is. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, I think that the way they went about it will, be the cause for the, the, you know, further antitrust to come out. Um, You know, I think it's going to make some significant changes happen in the ad tech ecosystem overall, but, you know, we'll see how quickly the, you know, the industry can adjust to it. Um, But I think one of those changes that you're going to see going forward is the the, um, sort of the, uh, a new realm of of a type of consent management platform where you're going to see not just one way to consent to advertising like like there has been in the past but multiple ways and you know we'll see what new platforms open up based on consent that are geared towards creating audiences Mm. um i think that you know, the changes that are in place right now on the short term are gonna really negatively affect app developers and publishers. It's gonna affect the revenue that they can make, the monetization of those apps and those websites to the point where they'll be looking for new technology that will help them further monetize those. Uh, No one wants to have to pay for every app that they use or every website that they go to. Right. (laughs) So, um, you know, the world has to understand that the free internet exists because of ad tech, you know, Mm. it exists because of ads and it exists because of data. And so the, there will have to be some evolution in how that is managed going forward.
0: Yeah, there's so much to pick apart in this conversation. I mean, even just recalling uh, when Apple announced uh, their the IDFA shutdown and the deprecation of what they're doing there, uh, Facebook were putting out uh, full-time, uh, full-page ads in newspapers saying this is going to negatively impact small business owners. Uh, that's a majority mm-hmm. of uh, share of Facebook's advertising customers are small business owners. Yeah. And yeah. they say, like, well, this is going to impact, uh, yeah, that that demographic, right? Because if you can't drop a mm-hmm. pixel and, you know, that uh, customer identity can't be sent back to Facebook and, you know, that's, that's obviously um, a problem for a lot of, Uh, It's not just the major advertisers. It's also, yeah, the small businesses that are impacted. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. there's that one side of the argument. The other side of the argument, well, is, well, Facebook pixels are on almost every website now. And so Facebook Mm -hmm. is just collecting like swaths of data on wherever you go online and aggregating Mm -hmm. that, joining that back to your profile and, uh, and then creating these incredibly robust profiles uh, of you uh, to sell more ads. And, you know, you, you could say that, you know, the, the dominance of Facebook with that particular type of technology and be able to join it in a first party way, I think is um, I think that's something to be concerned of as well. Uh, It's not just uh, Facebook is one player. Facebook is kind of is the player in this space when Mm -hmm. it comes to that domination around um, attracting customers on the web. Uh, But I, I do think, I, I do sort of agree with you that this is gonna cause a lot of changes and the free internet is kind of why the internet is ubiquitous now anyway. And it was really much built on ads and it was built on uh free meal type services. And not everybody yep. wants to pay to access something like New York Times. Nobody wants to pay to uh, to read a marketing tech blog. You know, uh, My newsletter isn't yep. free, right? For those reasons, because nobody wants to really, like, I think people are starting to pay and that behavior is changing now. People wanna pay for more content and services. But, you know, having 20 different subscriptions is just not tenable for anybody. Uh, so I, yep. I actually think that, yeah, that's a, it's a really good point you raised around uh, what this actually does to the ad uh, ad tech ecosystem. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the World Garden topic uh, that we touched mm-hmm. on a little mm-hmm. bit more. Uh, so one example is the Amazon Marketing Cloud. And mm-hmm. uh, what I found is is actually phenomenal is that this platform has grown 52 uh, percent from 2019 to 2020 in ad revenue so they' they're growing incredibly fast they're about the fastest growing advertising solution in the market now uh, which is pretty incredible uh, they made yeah. 5.4 billion um in that last year so 2020 uh alone so they that ad their advertising solutions are becoming more mature you know, they have that access to rich first-party data. Uh, they've got all of that transactional history. They own a number of different services uh, across Prime, across, uh, you know, uh, Prime uh, uh, Plus and different videos and all these different other services. Yeah. And what we found is that, okay, well, uh, Amazon is creating this incredible walled garden, this ecosystem where they're collecting varieties of data, not just transactional varieties of data across that entire environment. And so what do you think this idea of a walled garden, how do you think it will actually impact the way marketers do advertising? Because I just don't think it's tenable to say, okay, we'll we'll advertise on Amazon and we'll do it in this way. And then we'll advertise on Facebook, we'll do it this way. And it seems to me Mm -hmm. like you have to kind of work with the platforms, you're really beholden to the data you don't, you're not able to analyze it in the way that you perhaps you'd like to as well. What do you think are some of the risks there uh, with the emergence of, of these larger walled gardens?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a risk in the sense that it's it, it makes it um, certainly more difficult. Mm. Uh, and I'll point back to what you said earlier for small businesses. You know, small businesses that want to market their products and services, it's just making it more difficult, you know, to... Um, sort of put, be competitive in these, within these wild gardens and, you know, you know, credit Amazon for, for building an amazing engine, right. You know, if you can not only control the advertising, but also the, you know, the uh, district, you know, the product distribution as well, then no one needs to go anywhere else. Right. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's an ecosystem you never need to leave. Mm-hmm. Right. You just, it goes in a circle. You buy something, you know, you, you're advertised to something to purchase, you purchase it. And then it just, you know, it's, cir- it's circular. And it's, uh, it's actually, uh, I guess, the flywheel effect is what I would use. Um, it's smart. Um, but I think that at the same time, each of these companies are, are at risk of getting broken up um, uh, in, you know, due to antitrust simply because, you know, when you build monopolies that are that large, that don't allow and stifle competition, um, it's kind of dangerous for the economy. You know, we've already seen it with Amazon. I mean, Amazon has, you know, probably shut, you know, shut down thousands of small businesses, you know, worldwide, you know, just by the effect, you know, the Amazon effect of, of having the ability to have any product anywhere, you know, with you know, to, at your door within a day or two, um, and so a lot of the mom and pop shops, the the, the stores in, in in you know any town, USA or or across the world have been shut down because of it, and you know, there's uh, you know, you have to think about what that does to the world economy going forward when so much. Uh, business is going into one company instead of, uh, you know, thousands.
0: Yeah. It, it's interesting. Hey, like the, there is an existential risk there of, uh, of platforms, um, it's like an antitrust problem, right? Like, so it's, you know, they have so much control over the customer retention, the behavior, the data that they collect that uh, every other party is beholden to that company. they become a gatekeeper. And I think that this whole, uh, even just as the, uh, the example of Apple, this whole idea of uh, them shutting down tracking in their app, them controlling a lot more, uh, giving users more control around tracking in their devices, and then even just blatantly uh, deprecating cookies in the browser, you know, just doing that. Um, I, I just think that that's a huge platform risk because everybody's beholden. The customer's beholden. Uh, the company's beholden. The advertiser's are beholden. Like you mentioned, the sellers are beholden. The app developers are beholden. Like everybody is beholden to these large platforms. And so you have attempts like GDPR and the CCPA and these other sort of uh, regulatory bodies in government who are, they're effectively, you know, they're, they're forcing regulation around privacy, but but Apple is actually making it happen. You know they're they're the ones that are controlling the flow of data here in a lot of situations, yeah. and I agree with you that Amazon's doing something similar as well. And what I, you know, for all the ales for all the uh, the issues of third party data that uh, that are out there in terms of ad fraud, it is a bit more of an open system. Uh, it's an exchange, and mm-hmm. data can be shared across parties. And yes, you know there are risks for consumer privacy there, but it's not beholden to one uh, private corporation. And so I think this whole shift from walled gardens, I think we'll probably see a rubber band effect and then they'll go back to sort of more decentralized versions of tracking and privacy. Um, Because I think, yeah, the thing that's pushing the momentum on all of this is that, uh, yeah, a lot of ad tech provides uh, the the internet to be free to many, many people and acts accessible to literally millions and millions of people we can't afford. Uh, services like subscriptions for news and things like that and uh, just a touch on this yeah
1: yeah one thing i was going to add is is also look at what happened with apple just a couple of weeks ago being forced Mm. to allow third-party payment systems Uh, i think that's important an important um, thing to reference as well simply because it's just another sort of piece of the walled garden that just got broken right um, it's, it, it's probably the biggest piece of the wall garden that's been broken so far uh, of Apple's wall garden. And I think it's important to note because that may be sort of a small sign of more things to come. And, uh, I, I think it's a great thing that happened because to be honest with you, I think it, it benefits both the consumer and app developers and publishers, uh, to be able to have a third party, uh, payment system. Uh, I think that the, the 30% fee that Apple was taking was so significant, it was making it difficult for those apps to be able to monetize and, and publishers to be able to monetize. And so uh, I think it it's a significant change that shows that uh, the government is willing to do something about it. Um, and uh, uh, I look forward to seeing what other changes will,
0: will come, you know, that, and that'll be similar. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of changes happening in the ad tech world anyway. So you've got this walled garden, Apple, Facebook, Google's of the world. You know, they're trying to centralize a lot of what's happening in the advertising world. But then you have solutions like UID 2.0, which is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a first party data. It's, it's matching, you know, a lot of that data with what you can do with targeting across publishers. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other uh, systems like FLOC, you know, Federated Learning Cohort. That seems to be Google's uh, solution to uh, the deprecation of third-party cookies. Um, and then there's things like contextual advertising. So a lot of publishers are saying, well, we can help you target based on broad interest categories, um, not necessarily the granular behavior targeting and tracking um, right down to the, to the sort of yeah. the ones and the zeros, uh, but more broadly. And so there are a few different solutions out there. Those are some of the the ones that come top of mind, but there are heaps more now. Like this deprecation of third-party cookies has exploded. There's amount of innovation that's happening around what uh, what uh, what uh, I guess uh, demand side and supply side um, are actually doing to address the lack of targeting and tracking. And so, what's your take? What's your view? What's some of the technologies that are coming out now that you think are uh, important when it comes to uh, I guess perhaps replacing the third party cooking and looking at other viable solutions?
1: Um, yeah, great question. I think that uh, everyone today is touting a cookieless solution. Mm. Um, I think that most of them are um, sort of uh, have a fault in the sense that they're reliant on some other um, identifier, such as mobile IDs or IPs or hashed email addresses. So if you really look under the hood, um, there's those other pieces of the puzzle that they're using. And so with the deprecation of cookies, with the changes in IDFA, I think that, you know, a lot of those systems are going to get broken. Um, I think that something more significant has to happen. Um, and plus, you can't have 50 or 100 different, you know, cookie-less solutions, right? Uh, it just doesn't make sense. We had cookies. That was one. Everybody <laughs> used cookies. You can't go from one solution that, you know, that works across all all platforms to, you know, 50 or 100, um, you know, and try to interconnect them. It's, you know, it's not gonna work. Uh, I do believe that over the next year or two, you're gonna see um, some changes in new technologies that are more driven around consent management, like I mentioned earlier. And I think that those types of solutions have the ability to become more of, um, you know, sort of a, a a more mainstream solution, and the reason is that there needs to be a, a some way, some sort of identifier that allows the consumer to not only consent to ad tracking, targeting, whatever you want to call it. Um, but transparency as well. And you can't have 50 of those because then it's not transparency. If I have to go to 50 different locations to try to figure out who's tracking my data, who has access to it, it's not transparent. Um, And so I think that that's sort of where you're gonna see some changes happen over time. Um, But, you know, it's it's an evolving situation, you know, all of these other identifiers that exist today will have to evolve into something else when, you know, cookies goes away or, or, you know, IDFA tracking is fully gone or, you know, you know, look what Apple's doing now with emails and relay emails. And now, so you're not gonna be able to track data with emails through Apple either. So there just has to be a new technology. It's not going to be called a cookie. Maybe it'll be called a brownie. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it will be something that will most likely not be browser centric, but be more cross device, something that works both on a mobile device um, and in a web browser that maybe works through an app where you consent and you say, yes, I allow this other app to track me, or I allow this website to track me. And now you can see who's tracking you and what data they're tracking and that platform is creating audiences based on that to allow those apps and those publishers to monetize those audiences. You know, I I really think that there's going to be something more centralized that will, uh, you know, will work in that way.
0: Yeah. I I, I agree that there's a hard problem here with the, the centralization of different um, larger platforms. So yeah. So Apple and Google, they own, a vast majority of internet infrastructure now, how people access the web, so either through Safari, through mm-hmm. phone, through apps, but also through Chrome browser, Android phones. So you've got these two players, and a lot is reliant on the technology they're releasing. Uh, almost yeah. all of their tech network is is reliant on those browsers. And then you've got other players yeah. like Firefox and and other smaller ones like you know Microsoft Edge, you know, like or Internet Explorer. Right? Like who uses mm-hmm. those platforms really? But but anyway, mm-hmm. like there's there's an interesting paradigm here where you have uh, a lot of this is still controlled so you still have to work in the where the customers are and the customers are are either on google platforms okay. or on apple platforms and that's a reality and uh and i think yeah that the you got apple saying okay let's move away from tracking completely So you can be totally anonymous online and and we'll completely protect your privacy. And then you have Google saying, well, we're going to protect your privacy a little bit. You know, so we're going to get rid of third party tracking, but we're going to introduce a new model, which, you know, you can actually opt in for the FLOC solution um, and and see if you're eligible, but, you know, you can, uh, customers can opt into that to get more personalized ads and things, you know, so there's, it just seems that that's a hard problem. You can't really get away from that. Uh, every ad tech network has to, mat, has to work with those uh, platforms. And so I think it's interesting. I, I do hope that there is more options out there. I, I definitely think it's probably bad for the economy, the global economy and the ad, ad tech um, space uh, to have yeah. these larger players controlling almost all of the behavior experience and data from customers. So, so it's very interesting one to cover, but I want to talk a little bit just as we close up today about consumer privacy. Now, this has obviously come to the forefront of uh, the public's interest. So there's a lot more conversation now. There's a lot more discussion around, okay, what is consumer privacy? You know, should I say, yes, let this app track me? You know, things like that. So uh, I want to get a view from you. uh, How are you helping customers talk about, think about uh, how they're communicating with their customers and how they're talking about the data they're collecting from them. So, you know, things like privacy, security, the value that they're going to give back to the customer for the data they collect as well. What are some of the things you're seeing in terms of how brands are working with customers on that?
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, Brands are becoming much more aware of this. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there's, you know, there's a couple of issues around when you look at all the data breaches, everybody starts to get really scared about sharing you know, any data about themselves. Mm -hmm. And so brands have had to become a lot more aware of building relationships with their customers and earning their trust. Mm -hmm. And so we talked to brands about that um, and and the importance of earning their trust. And look, we're going to see a lot more of this going forward with all of these changes because first party data is going to become more and more important. And so with first party data becoming more and more important, brands will need to build those relationships and you know, learn how to manage that value exchange mm-hmm. and trust so that consumers learn to trust brands that they like for one reason or another and are willing to share some information with them in some sort of, like you said, value exchange so that they they feel like they're getting something out of it. If brands can manage that, then it will be you know, very, very valuable to them going forward to be able to obtain that first party data. Nothing is more valuable than first party data. You can go and get all the third party data you want, but if, but the first party data um, allows you to really understand who your customers are and, you know, you can't find more customers without fully understanding your own. So I think that uh, it's going to be a lot about trust and brands building trust with consumers.
0: Yeah, I love what you just said there, David. You can't find more customers until you you truly understand your own. Um, I think it's a fantastic note to finish on. I think that's a really good point. I think a lot of brands, one example, Gap, uh, the fashion brand, really interesting that they'll, and I think Nike as well, it's probably more coming from the e-commerce space. They will take uh, customer data and then they'll actually show you uh, what they're going to use it for which I think is completely mm-hmm. novel and pretty interesting. So I say, okay, yeah. we're collecting your preference data on what your size is, perhaps what kind of clothing you're interested in. And then we're going to show that. They literally tell customers, we're going to show this to you when you go into the app, you know, or when you join the loyalty program, we're going to use the data in this way. So you get value out of it as well. And so, yeah. you know, like, uh, any person, like even myself, right? My online identity is scattered all, all over the place, right? I've, sa- I've signed up for a million apps <laughs> over, my, over the years. You know, I've used different social networks. I'm browsing different websites all the time. And my identity is all over the web, right? Like everybody else's, it's all in all different uh, places. But I think there's this really interesting idea around, hey, let's actually show our customers the power of what we can do with their data to make their experiences better to make them richer, more immersive, to make them, you know, create more value for them, to make their life easier. And so I think that's a really interesting trend that's coming up and a lot of people have been talking about it. But uh, but thank you, David. It's been a fantastic conversation. We've covered bad data in the AdStack network and, the, and what to do about it. And we've also covered privacy and the issue of the cookie deprecation and walled gardens and what is going to happen in the future for this particular area. And so uh, I would love to throw to you, where could we find you on the internet?
1: Uh, easy to find me on LinkedIn, easy to find me at www.bdex.com um, or, you know, feel free to email me david at bdex.com.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for joining.
1: Thank you so much, Juan. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you.